0: The political party that is able to capture the hearts and minds of a multiracial working class will be the dominant party for the next generation.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And if you've been listening to Politicology for any length of time, you are probably familiar with my friend Mike Madrid. Mike was one of my co-founders on The Lincoln Project, and we have since become very good friends. He's a national political strategist. He's our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics at Politicology. He's a student of history and a veteran of too many political campaigns to count. And he lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. And recently, I was out in California, and Mike and I made some time to visit in person, and it was long overdue and really great to see him. I wanted to share some of that with you, so we sat down at his house in Sacramento and hit record. Last week, we released the first part of this conversation, and in that, we talked about Mike's piece in the Sacramento Bee and the piece he's working on for The New York Times, which is about how people are dramatically misunderstanding the Latino voting patterns that we've been seeing and the trends he's uncovered. We also talk about the lessons Democrats can learn to win more power. In this second half, you're about to hear us go a bit broader to look at what these trend lines are telling us about 2024 and even further, the future of politics in America. We talk about what Steve Bannon has actually achieved and we'll talk about technology's effect on democracy. I hope you enjoy. All right, so we've established that Hispanics in in the majority of the country are not the same. Do not have the same voting behavior and identification uh, as Hispanics in California. Mm-hmm. What are the lessons then? I mean, let's put this to, let's put this to work. Let's, let's just say we're talking to all of our democratic colleagues who are r- running an organizing strategy at the national level. Right. They're looking at house races. They're, they're, they're sweating bullets, trying to fend off losing the majority in 2022, yeah. which we, I, I think they're going to, It just, the map looks like it's going to be
0: a bloodbath to me. Right. Okay. But let's
1: say we're, we're right. We're now advising our democratic colleagues on how to, how to hold on to their majorities.
0: Well, let me, let me answer it this way if I could, I'm going to, I'm going to give advice to both parties. Great. Okay. And here's why Uh, I, and again, I I understand the audience and I, I, you know, you you know who I am, you know, my work, but sometimes I get some pushback on this. I believe the Republican party is an existential threat to democracy in America, but I also believe that um, what is right for the Latino community is also increasingly going to be right to stabilizing America. And if both parties are pursuing this vote in a healthy, meaningful way, then that could be one of the stabilizing forces that puts the democracy back on its guardrails. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that's very important. Yeah. So the, let, let me advise the Republican Party here, as I have uh, to, to to little effect over the course of most of my career. I don't think any of them are listening. Yeah, they're probably not. But let me kind of use this as an, an example because they are seeing. They saw a shift towards Donald Trump in 2020, and everybody's like, "Oh my God, how could that possibly be happening?" At the Lincoln Project, we saw this. We were talking about this. We we're raising the alarm bells. A lot of our strategy was predicated on making this an issue and kind of forcing the Democrats to pay attention. That's where we were using some of that. We did a Hispanic summit. We were doing some stuff, some work in the Florida uh, you know, community, not necessarily to win, but to, to to bring in the cavalry and say, you guys need to get in here and get into the fight. Um, the, people... Look at Donald Trump's 2020 performance and question whether or not that was an aberration. Was it a Trump-specific phenomenon that brought Hispanic voters out to the polls? Was there something about their machismo right. or their socially conservative Catholics right. that are really pro-life? Pro or was it WhatsApp communications and they've got – the Republicans have some sort of a silver bullet and a secret communications network and, and talking <laughs> to people <laughs> like, what is happening? If you look at the trend line, the aberration wasn't 2020. It was 2016. It was, a, it was an artificially low number. Um, especially when we remove the California exception, okay? 2016 was the aberration. 2020 was a return to the normal trajectory of the Hispanic vote. And when you look at it that way, you go, ah, it makes sense. And here's why. We don't talk enough about this. Yeah. In 2016, a lot of what was driving the overall uh, Trump campaign was coming down the escalator and saying Mexicans are rapists and they're drug dealers, or it was chanting, build a wall, or, you know, the, the ant or bad hombres, all of this stuff was common parlance in the 2016 election. And it was very shocking, for was that very shocking because that time because it had
1: never been said out loud no, before. It had
0: always been thought, yeah. but never in Republican convention, but never been but said out loud. And then in 2018, and, and by the way, Trump wins a low, he hits the low range of Hispanic voters in the 2016 election. 2018, they run against caravans. The caravans are coming. And what happens? They lose. They get slaughtered in the midterms. Somebody figured out this is not a winning strategy to be reelected on. And you'll notice in 2020, there were no build-a-wall chants. There were no Mexicans or drug dealers and rapists. There was no bad hombres. There were no immigrant caravans on Fox. It all stopped. All of the anti-Hispanic rhetoric stopped. You know what started up? Law and order because of the George Floyd stuff. That's the dog whistle for anti-black sentiment. And you started to see that in Wisconsin. You started to see that in different parts of the country again because they still needed to rile up their white, non-college-educated rural base and have it show up in huge numbers, which they did. But they also needed to get an increased share of the Hispanic vote. And they were saying it. They were telling us, we're going to go get the Hispanic vote. And a close observer, like me, who watches these things, was saying the build the wall chants are gone. The bad hombre stuff is gone. He's not talking about Mexican drug dealers and rapists anymore. And there's no fear of immigrant can't uh caravans coming from Central and South America anymore on Fox News. there has been a coordinated There's shift a here. coordinated shift here to stop attacking the Hispanic community and it paid off. The, the vote came back. Mm. came back to its normal trend line. Mm. Now that's so my advice is very yeah. clear yeah uh, to the Republican Party. if you want to keep seeing that trend line increase, at a minimum, just stop being a racist. (laughs) Not that tough. Not that tough. I mean, for some. (laughs) Right, for some. You will see a marginal increase because of the policies you support and the industries that you represent. You will see a gradual increase the way every other immigrant group in the history of this country has proceeded over time.
1: Yeah. And even even if a squashing of racism and racist rhetoric is advantageous to Republicans electorally, it's still good for the country. It's still good for the country. Yeah, yeah Precisely. I
0: and yeah. that's my argument. Yeah. And so if, if you just quit being racist... Now, the second is to double down on these policies and these industries, which are anathema to kind of progressives. And I understand that too. But the people that are working in the oil patches, the people that are working in the construction trades that are building things, um, these are folks that... Um, are going to be compelled by a Republican message on those industries well, because the, that's where they're making a, a middle-class living. And that's also going to be
1: crucial to easing the tension on the supply chains right now. Precisely.
0: Precisely. So there, there's there's an opening there. And again, it, ideally you would do both. Quit with the you know anti-other uh, messaging, with the anti-Hispanic messaging. Double down on your middle-class message, and that will work. Um, but at least one of those two. So for Democrats, yeah. Democrat, and again, for, for for Democrats, the real problem is, um, is a policy problem. It, it really is about, you know, and a lot of this has to do with climate change, which is an existential threat to the planet. Absolutely. And so until Democrats can prove that going green can legitimately create middle-class jobs, not in the green job stuff that kind of uh, – nobody believed in 2008 that the green new deal the green new deal was you know that these these are these are like unicorns you yeah. want to believe that they're real but they're not real and yeah. people who work in those industries know damn well it's not real yeah so unless you can prove to people that there is an economic incentive to this agenda you're not going to win right because you are viewed as a threat to shut down down these industries you are and this is the lesson to learn you know from 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 states like california you are creating poverty by doing this you have to have a bottom-up you approach. you have here. to have a bottom-up approach if you want to win this vote um because this is where people are at this is a working class we used to call these reagan democrats mm. when i was you know a kid in the mm. business back when it was it was virtuous for republicans to try to have a crossover message appeal now you know <laughs> now you're you know you're good luck yeah, yeah good luck with that right but look as long as working class conservative value you know middle america voters were white we were very comfortable with that they're not now And so there's a wide swath of the Republican base that is just not comfortable with viewing Latino Democrats as Reagan Democrats, although that is exactly what what they they are. are. And that is racist. That's absolutely racist. textbook definition. It's a textbook definition of racism, racism, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what Paul Ryan, you know, was was articulated. That's a textbook definition of racism. So, so that's the conundrum. Is the, the best way to put it is this. The party that is able to capture the hearts and minds of a multiracial middle class will be the dominant party for the next generation.
1: Say that one more time, because we've talked about this before, and I want you to
0: repeat that. The political party that is able to capture the hearts and minds of a multiracial working class will be the dominant party for the next generation. The Republicans have a problem with the multiracial part. The Democrats have a problem with the working class part. And whichever party is able to move to the center to capture the fastest growing segment of the electorate by addressing that key problem is going going to be the dominant party. And so you have to start asking yourself as a Democrat. And it, this is a tough, tough decision here, right? I mean there's 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 these environmental concerns, but there's also these concerns about democracy and the guardrails of democracy. What is more important? Because uh, you know these voters uh, it, it's 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 a luxury to be able to say we should get rid of fossil fuels to save the planet when your kids will go hungry next month if that was the case. Most people making that argument, and it's a legitimate one, do not live in that reality. They do not understand that if this job goes away, we will lose our house, my kids will go hungry, we'll have to find some other way to survive. And until demo and that used to be the Democratic Party, by the way, that used to be FDR's working class party, <laughs> that the Democratic Party is no longer the party of FDR in the working class as much as the Republican Party is no longer the party of Abraham Lincoln and freeing the slaves. They are completely different parties now. and most people don't want to believe that in whichever party that they're in, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that that yeah. what I'm saying is not yeah. outside the you know yeah. mainstream discussion. yeah,
1: okay. So, as a practical matter, going into the midterms, yeah, specific things, yes, that the Democrats need to do. First of all, do you think? Do you actually think it's possible that they hold on to the majority? I, I, can't, I think it's like, extremely difficult. I can't
0: see it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 um, look, I want to see it.
1: To be clear, to be clear, listeners, I, like I want to see it, but yeah. I can't.
0: I haven't. I look, don't see it. anything can happen in politics, right? You have to remember that campaigns matter. And what I am convinced of is what we're dealing with now, in a year from now, there's going to be a lot of very significant variables that we have not dealt with. Yeah, but the big ones, Mike,
1: are going to be the same. Inflation and the economy are going to be – they're going to drive the day for for, for, for well over a year. There's now. no question. And I think that's just going to be at the top. I don't think anything displaces that unless, you know, God forbid, something even worse than a pandemic happens, right? Precisely. Which, which could – okay, yeah, fine, fair. That, that's all I'm saying. That, right, okay, I see.
0: Yeah, but more, more importantly, uh, the trend line – even if those issues that you're bringing were not there, right. the trend line is not good. Right, right. The, his- the baseline of history. Yeah, the baseline, which is what I look at. Yeah. Like that's true. part of the numbers for breakfast thing. It's yeah. like, well, let's look at history as a guide. Yeah. What does the math tell us? What yeah. do the trend lines tell us? Yeah. Now, as a, as a as a baseball fan, you'll always look at statistics and the statistics tell you everything until they don't. You have to be mindful of that. Yeah. But overwhelmingly, um, the the prognosis for the party that holds the White House is not good. Right. We are also at a historically close margin for Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House. It's five votes. I mean, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. We're basically at parity now. Redistricting will probably nominally benefit the Republicans. Mm-hmm. So you've got history, you've got structural reasons, and you've got, you know, um, the economic climate not looking good for Democrats. Yeah, it could be very bad. Yeah, it could be marginally bad. But the the, the I, I think it's very hard to come to any yeah. other conclusion. Yeah, with the full caveat, there's a year left in this whole thing that it's not going to be a good year for the Democratic Party. Yeah, right, right. So what does mitigate that, especially with Hispanic voters? is is having um, not d- Democrats tend to believe that just the size of a spending program right, is enough to get yeah. these voters back yeah, it's right. kind of like
1: u- 1.2 trillion dollars we did it Yeah, we you, did it Joe if we, okay. that,
0: if we had done that a week before we would have won Virginia no horse shit no it's just not that's not <laughs> the way things work here right you're undoing a brand and an image in, in a lot of these working class industries that have been developed over many 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 many, many years and and the democrats have done a very poor job with working class folks. They tend to believe that oh minimum wage minimum wage is not a working class issue. It's an anti-poverty problem for sure. But there's nobody making 10, 12, 15 dollars an hour that is in the middle class. It's not a thing. So stop. Stop with that, <laughs> right? And then you know there's the you know childcare and all that yeah, that's true, but the 90% of people in the working class would rather be able to just work in an industry that can pay them 75, 80, 90, hundred thousand dollars a year than worry about whether or not the government is giving them family leave. Right, it doesn't mean that they don't want it, but that's not a compelling issue. If you ask working class people their top ten issues, that doesn't pop into the top ten. The first is going to be jobs, and then it's going to be the economy, and the third is what else—education for my kids. After that, it's a it's a dramatic drop off on on every other weird thing that may come up. You got to win on the big stuff. You got to win on the big stuff. It means you have to have your policy and your values have to meet the voters where they're at. Yeah, and that's not happening with. Yeah. The working working class whites for yeah. sure have fled the Democratic Party. The erroneous belief was that Latinos, because they're not white, would be with the Democratic Party because that's what black voters have done for so many years. Yeah. That's not what's happening. Yeah, That's the mistake. Yeah. Yeah. That's the misunderstanding that Democrats are making. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) But it's important
1: stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's really important stuff. Yeah. And I know know that people listening to us are, you know, I'm sure there's some people who are frustrated to hear this, but I think they also know that. We would both like to see Democrats win more power at this point. Like right now, I mean, I, like I want, I want Democrats to win more power because I'm so afraid of Republicans.
0: Well, that's but, a better yeah, way I of mean, putting it. Is like, I want to see Republicans have less power. Correct. Yeah. Sure. I, I, yes. I'm afraid of yeah. the Republican Party coming and right to power. right now we've got
1: two options. And in another episode we're going to talk about the problem with two party system and the monopoly, yeah. and that's a right. whole other thing. Yeah. But but yeah. but yes, right now Republicans need to lose more power. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I, you know, look, you know, we, we know who we are in this space. People have been listening to us a long time. There are those people that will say, "Oh, you're a Republican, so you're you're evil, and once you're evil, you're always evil." I'm the the truth of the matter is, I'm very concerned about the country, and if we have two parties that are in a healthy way competing for the fastest growing segment of the electorate, it's going to have the net effect of both parties fighting for the center, right? Latinos have the promise of moderating both parties. So I'm not an ideological warrior for either side. Do I believe the Republican Party is a threat? Yeah. For the fifth time in this podcast, I will say it. Yes, they are. That's why I burned down my business to make damn sure that Donald Trump wasn't reelected. But that doesn't mean that all the problems are solved. If both parties are coming to the center... To meet Latino voters, the new American majority that is emerging. The new American fulcrum. That's how we can save democracy. Yeah. You may not like all of the policies there, but that's the definition of a democracy. You're not yeah. supposed to like everything, <laughs> You're that, to you like get. everything that you get. Okay? Actually,
1: why don't we zoom out a little bit yeah. to help to help frame why 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 this intra intra-country struggle and the way we're talking about demographics and and, and domestic politics? Is actually so crucial to saving the world, and I hate, to talk- <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but 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 give me but give me the answer in twenty seconds. No, no, no. But but I mean, if you zoom out. Uh, there's a reason. There is there are, there is plenty of reason to be very concerned about the future of the planet because of America's situation right now. Yeah. The right? stability
0: of our democracy. The stability
1: of our democracy, yeah. the stability of our economy. Yes. The value of our money.
0: Yes. The
1: the the crumbling of institutions, which we have, which we have talked about a bit, but I don't think we've actually done it justice yeah. yet. No. Um do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like the the also, which, of like, what do you want to talk I about? I mean I mean the crumbling of institutions. So it's interesting, it's really interesting to me. Uh, you and i have both we've mentioned this on podcasts before we've talked about it in private um and uh, and i think a lot of people who are really paying attention have identified this trend of the, de- the sort of uh the deinstitutionalization of kind of everything yeah. right the decentralization of everything the atomization of everything and yeah. that includes banking it includes media it includes politics it includes uh tech it includes um i mean it, basically, the faith-based, that, community. The faith-based community. Faith-based no. community. Anywhere you look, mm-hmm. the, the institutions, and that doesn't just mean a building, right? Right. right. Uh, the, the cultural the,
0: institutions, cultural
1: institutions, religious institutions, economic and political institutions—they're all crumbling. And I think it's really interesting that that's obviously the trend that we've identified. Mm-hmm. It was also Steve Bannon's goal. Yeah. Yeah. As an avowed Leninist, mm-hmm. which people forget that he was an avowed Leninist, right? But he he had sort of famously reported to have said, "I want to set, I want to bring all of the institutions crashing down. I want everything to crumble." Right. But that's what's actually happening. Whether yes. Steve Ben and Steve Mann is not single handedly doing that, but it is a historical trend that we seem to be living through right now, and so. We're having this conversation about the domestic politic, the domestic political fight in America, and the the changing demographics of America, and your hope that the that the Latino uh, demographic is now going to be the the center of America, mm-hmm. that it may end up being our you know our saving grace. Mm-hmm. But we're having all that in, the, in this much bigger context, and I just want to talk about that a little bit because if we don't get it right, we'd, we're kind of doomed.
0: Yeah, I mean. Look, confidence in institutions have been on the decline since the 50s and the 60s, gradually. We're now at a point where not only do people not have faith in most institutions, but they view those institutions as a threat. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you look, and, and, and like, like we do as, a, as an American people specifically, we partisanize the institutions. Yeah. So if I'm on the left, I believe in government. I believe in the media. If I'm on the right- I believe in expertise. I believe in expertise. I believe in in, in the university system, the academy. Mm -hmm. I believe in these as institutions. Mm -hmm. On the right, I believe in the corporation. Mm -hmm. I believe in the church. I believe in the military. Mm -hmm. I believe in certain institutions. But the others are a threat to my way of life. Mm -hmm. They're literally a danger. And so what we are hearing from both sides of the aisle is an attack on institutions. And the way it's used in political parlance is the word big. It's Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren and Bernie Sanders saying, I'm against big Wall Street. I'm against big corporations. I'm against big plastic. I'm against big oil. If you throw the adjective big in front of anything to the left, it immediately becomes an evil. Mm -hmm. Now on the right, you're beginning to see the emanations of this as well. You're hearing Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley starting to say big tech is bad. Mm -hmm. Big Hollywood. Mm -hmm. These are private entities that you never would have heard in the Republican Party Correct. years ago. You would just hear big government. Yeah, just big government. And big government's not even the lead anymore. No. They're against big tech, first and foremost, and, and big Hollywood because it's a cultural fight in the Republican Party, really all it is. And then big government's kind of there. And, and as we've talked about before, one of the reasons for that is because government as an institution is no longer viewed as the biggest threat to their way of life. Right. Right. It's not the threat that it was in the 80s and the 90s and in the 70s, right? It's now technology companies and Hollywood culture, mass media, that is viewed as a greater threat to their freedoms and their way of life because of the imposition of values that they are rejecting. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that in, the institutional yeah. attacks yeah. are really what is driving modern populism, which is not home to the right or the left. Mm-hmm. In fact, we don't really discuss as Americans the size of government anymore because the Republicans have basically stopped. They've abandoned their
1: role as as being small small government advocates, precisely.
0: And you may hear it a little bit, but it's it's the the argument falls flat because during the Trump era, they were they were big government status. They were spending faster than any other president in the history of the country. Yeah, so. You know the, the but but what happens is when institutions collapse, we create ins- institutions and like you said it's important. These aren't just buildings; these are cultural right. and social institutions. They're norms. They're they're they are they are collections of norms. They're anchors. Yeah, that give us stability in society. I'm not saying that they're all just. I'm not saying that they're all moral. But what they are is they are agreed-upon norms and anchors that allow us as human beings to not kill each other on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. to function, to operate, and to agree on a certain set of rules. Democracy is an institution. Democracy is an institution. So as these institutions and our belief in institutions collapse, what, is filled, what fills the void is misinformation and chaos. And that's when we say Steve Bannon is an avowed Leninist, that's the objective. Yeah. The objective is not, and then fascism comes in. It's the strong man. Yeah, because social because our
1: social contract is an institution in and of itself. But social contracts require trust.
0: And trust is what we're losing. And the when you break down institutions and cultural norms, you lose that trust. Yeah. And that's the void that that's the vacuum they're trying to create, is attack the institutions. And as Bannon famously said, because Lenin said it you only need a third of the electorate to destroy institutions. You just have to have a determined third of the people wow. that will co- continually attack and attack and attack, and the institutions will fall. And, we're, and he, become, we're coming perilously close to that.
1: Yeah, and if the institutions are the things that are holding us together, that are giving structure to society, yeah. like stability to society, and those crumble, which is exactly what he wants to do, then, then he you wants have an opportunity cash.
0: to remake everything. Remake everything. And yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. And that's why he attacks the Catholic Church. On a global scale, this is not an American phenomenon. He's in talking to leaders all over the world that are of like mind to try to destabilize the entire world order by attacking institutions.
1: Yeah, and this is probably why. I mean, we should talk about Bernie Trump voters, but this is exactly why it's populism.
0: Populism. Yeah, it's a fear we are entering a a time in in human history where government, for the first time, is not the greatest threat to our freedoms or our privacy. Right. It is, it is companies. Yes. It is people who hold our data, whether it's on our phone and, and, and technology platforms, or people who buy and procure that data that markets to us day in and day out, know a hell of a lot more about us than the government. I literally just had a very
1: fascinating, long conversation with two professors at Stanford, mm-hmm. Jeremy Weinstein, Mehran Sahami, who co-wrote, along with Rob Reich, uh, a book called System Error, How Big Tech Went Wrong and How, how We Can Fix It. And they created this class at Stanford where they start talking with, uh, with, with engineers about the, the moral questions that these engineers are now charged with making mm-hmm. as they're programming algorithms, which increasingly drive our lives, right. right? In an invisible way, like to say nothing of the data that they are collecting, right? There's this, um, there's this thought experiment or series of thought experiments in, in philosophy and psychology <clears throat> called the trolley experiment. The, tro- the trolley, uh, the trolley dilemma, right? So, and it goes something like uh, a trolley is going down some tracks, and if it goes one direction, it's it's basically going to hit six people and run them over mm-hmm. and kill them. But you have the power to switch the tracks and send it down a different set of tracks where it'll only kill one person. And do you pull the track? Do you pull the lever? Uh, do, you, do you do nothing? and have some kind of plausible deniability that you were responsible for killing six people or do you pull the lever and actively take responsibility for killing one person mm. and that used to be sort of an abstract you know an abstract thought experiment but now in an era of self-driving cars where we are literally programming them to make a decision exactly like that mm. what happens when this self-driving car has to decide you know do i do i kill the passenger do i kill the driver or do I kill the pedestrian mm-hmm. if there are no other algorithmic outcomes here? Um, and we haven't even begun. We, first of all, society is not really uh, talking about this at all. Right. Congress isn't equipped to talk about this. Um, but to your point, this is this is a, a brand new frontier in human civilization, and we have never been here before.
0: Yeah, there's so many places and in so many ways we are in uncharted territory. A lot of this discussion sometimes brings us back to as you you put really eloquently, it's it's not you know history kind of there's the echoes of history are there and we can't learn from it. But we are at one of those tipping points in in human history where technology has brought us to a foundational change in our government in in our our currency markets, which mm-hmm. I know you talk a lot about in in the practice of faith, in the trust that we have in technology to make moral judgments. And these are all going to be the questions that we're we're not going to have to make determinations on. They are ones that we are actively making determinations on now without an agreed-upon construct that institutions provide guidance for. Yeah, because
1: the promise of technology all along has been to make things more efficient, Mm -hmm. to decentralize, to cut out the middlemen reduce friction in the system reduce barriers to entry right and in a way the institutions that are crumbling are the middlemen yeah right they're a buffer they are they are they are sort of a they they are collateral damage to technological innovation
0: they don't work anymore
1: which means we're not going to stop this trend no we have to figure out How to go with the trend at an incredibly fast pace. At an incredibly fast pace. And what new institutions are we going to
0: create that are compatible with this new world? That's why. And again, not to to strike fear in the heart of a whole lot of people, but you know, democracies do not have a history of lasting very long. If you look through the course of human history, written history, democracies are, are an exception. And there are legitimate questions, and we are seeing Putin and Xi Jinping from China actively asking the question of, of Joe Biden. Yeah, um, Joe Biden That's addressed right. this. Yeah, at the state of the uh, – you know, not the State of the Union, but whatever it was, no. his first address to Congress, which was um, the challenge for this century is going to be whether or not democracy can survive. Is democracy suited for the digital age? That's right. When democracy by design is supposed to be slow moving, and the bureaucracies we built were buffers and filters to the mob sentiments of what public opinion was telling us at any given time, because stability and 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 slowness and methodical moving yeah. movement was the virtue.
1: That's exactly right. It's
0: what created stability for the democracy. Yeah none of those are viewed as virtuous in the digital age. Right. Those are hindrances. That's
1: ex- exactly right. right. Democracy is the opposite of move fast and break things.
0: That's exactly right. It's move slow and build consensus. So when all of our technology uh, is moving in a different direction and all of our institutions are crumbling under that same weight, is democracy the best form of government? Or how must it evolve? Or, and most importantly, how must it evolve to allow for more participation, protected freedoms... And ultimately sovereignty yeah. over a the gathering power, the dangerous coercive power of a of a growing state that could be bigger than our country. So
1: Given that the like I want I want to drive something home here because if if you accept all of this, and you know, if listeners are long for this ride, I know it's pretty wild, but <laughs> but but if you accept that this is where we're headed and that democracy inevitably is going to have to evolve if it is going to survive in the same way that capitalism is going to have to evolve if it is going to survive, because it's very clear right now our current configuration of capitalism is not working. Correct. I just spoke with Carly Fiorina about this a few weeks ago. We arrived at exactly the same conclusion. This is, this. is It's very clear to look around, like you said, in California as a great example. This is not working, mm-hmm. and it is continuing in this direction. Mm-hmm. If you accept that capitalism and democracy are going to have to evolve to survive, well, then how do you hang on to the good parts? You have to identify the values. Values-based. You have to identify the values that we as a society can all hold on to as we build whatever the new thing
0: is. I think what you're saying is profoundly important. It, you build institutions around values and the institutions that we're going to have to build in this new age are going to look very, very different than what we have. And so we have to build a system or systems that protect those values, whether it's freedom, whether it's equality, whether it's sovereignty, whatever those issues, those values are. But And here's what's most important. I'm not convinced that government is going to be the greatest protector of those values. I think that that worked very well during an ag- agrarian age and in, in an industrial age. I don't know that government is best suited to protect those values in the digital age. I could be wrong, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of evidence to suggest that that is the case. And so we can either be paralyzed by the fear of that, or we can work to influence, even at a micro level, to protect what, is the, what protects my privacy, right? What privacy measures are we taking from, from private sector companies procuring my data to the government, you know, um, taking our data? I mean, we, we live in a time and an age where we as individuals are more transparent than our government. Yeah, That's the first time in history. Yeah. You look back at, you know, uh, other times in history, our government didn't have the technological reach to understand that much about each of us. As much as we were able to demand open books and transparency of it, that's no longer the case. And so that's that's a threat to freedom. That's a threat to democracy. It's certainly a threat to, to, to sovereignty and individualism. So these are all questions that, like I said, they're not future questions. They're, they're, they're now they're questions. Now,
1: they're now questions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah go ahead.
0: and it's a lot easier to wreck these institutions, which is what Bannon is doing, Yeah. With the easy solution of saying an authoritarian will step in, only I can solve this problem. That's yeah. the goal.
1: Yeah,
0: um, it's going to be a a, um, a a challenge, a continual struggle to protect institutions that that um, match our our American experiment, that match our history, that match our quote unquote American values. But what I will also say is this. The fight is increasingly gonna have to look transnational.
1: Yeah. Say more about this because we've had this conversation. I'm just I'm glad that we're having this conversation on the podcast now because we've you and I have been talking about this for so long. And I I really this is this is some information I really want to get out there. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So because of the nature of technology and what is happening, and you can see it with the influence of other governments in our own democracy. The belief in the idea that the fight for democracies between Republicans and Democrats is a bilateral war, I think is very myopic. It's very short-sighted. It's small. It's small. Yeah. It may be true, yeah. but it's one piece on a bigger chessboard. Um, democracies uh, are under attack all over the globe by the same forces. I mean, if, if Russian influence and Chinese influence – uh, helped undermine our elections. What makes us think that that's not happening? Right, right. <laughs> <In> other, <laughs> right, of course it is.
1: Right, I mean, uh, and, and Applebaum tweets about this, talks about this quite yeah. a lot, like about this, this is happening everywhere. This is happening everywhere. Every, in, in other countries everywhere.
0: Yeah, and so the idea of thinking of us uh, as 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 the primary mover of a certain set of values is very much a last century idea. Yeah. It was why we were engaged in the Cold War. It was why we were engaged in the Second and the First World War. It's why we took conflict and managed it the way we did, is we were trying to protect certain values by the end of the barrel of a gun, and there were state actors and alliances aligned in those fights. The next stage of this is going to look more like pro-democratic forces in certain countries working with pro-democratic forces in our country. And authoritarian regimes is already happening, Mm -hmm. working in this country with authoritarian regimes in other countries. Right. And so the battle for democracy and authoritarianism, um, and that, that I believe is the battle for the century. Yeah. Right. It's and it's go-
1: already happening. It's already happening. We're, yeah, already, we're already deep very, into this we're fight. Deep into this fight.
0: Is, is not reliant on whether or not the Democrats win the midterms, although that's important mm-hmm. as a as a battlefield tactic. But it's we not need the to war. understand
1: why it's important and not get hung up on the prognostications of what, you know, why this group voted this way. We, we have to understand the broader context that this fight is happening in yeah. and just, the, just how significant – it is what happens in u s. domestic politics, yeah,
0: yeah, it's a battle between values, right. And those values are I would argue, <laughs> and the founders would argue these were inalienable rights, yeah, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. those yeah. are not rights that are specific to Americans. They are endowed by our creator, yeah simply by this by by the sake of being a human being. Yeah. And unless we're working in co coalition, with people all over the planet to meet those ends, who it, believe in those values, who believe in those values, it will not survive. Uh, the the luxury of that type of thinking is left with the last century. It is now a global conflict. The idea uh, wrote a piece on this about the uh, Reagan's you know shining city on the hill. Mm-hmm. America is no longer the shining city on the hill for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah. We've demonstrated we no longer hold that mantle. Our democracy is not strong enough to be the beacon of hope for everybody. But the ideals need to be the shining city on the hill. Yeah. It's what America brought forth to say this is for everybody. It's the province of humankind, not the province of Americans. Yeah. And that's where I think I fundamentally disagree with so many in the Republican Party today, Mm -hmm. is the only way that freedom and sovereignty in the American experiment survives is if it becomes a human experiment
1: not by which not by withdrawing into isolationism isolationism is a very big danger yeah. as
0: is nationalism yeah. as is populism yep. the the idea to protect those inalienable rights jefferson eloquently yeah. pointed out the founders the next step in survival is not by contracting internally right. and looking inward as a nation. It's by expanding and promoting those values transnationally.
1: Yeah. But in the past, we have sought to export American values yeah. at the point of a gun. Barrel of a gun. And it's not going to happen that way.
0: No. No, and I'm not making that argument. No, 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 yeah. no. Of course not. Yeah. No, no.
1: no. And I, I'm trying to recall because we did. We don't, we've also been talking about this too. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen in the barrel of a gun. And in a way, that was that was. Um, uh, while many would argue we meant well by that, we 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 you know, or many would argue we didn't. We just wanted oil, whatever. Uh, but American values are going to spread because people want. Those things,
0: yeah, and and don't look at it as having to win a majority anymore in each country, right? The cultural imperialism, right. the imposition of values. Right. You, you can't go into the Philippines after the Spanish American War yeah. and quote unquote give them democracy. Yeah. You can't expect democracy to take root right. in Afghanistan, right? But there are enough players in those areas to be allies in that cause transnationally because right?
1: countries are also institutions. Yeah, the nation
0: state yeah, is collapsing. The nation
1: state is an institution, yeah. and that is what's collapsing. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And our problems, you know, John yeah. Kerry today is wrapping up in Glasgow, right, to start. I don't know how successful they are. or They're not, a, a, you know, I'm not going to judge that. But what I am going to say is our problems are now becoming global. Yeah. The economy is more intertwined than it ever has. There's this discussions about global currencies, yeah. right? Uh, so the, the we, no one nation can solve global warming. Yeah. It has to be a transnational event. And and again, this gets back to why I believe the corporation is so important is because they are already transnational actors. In many ways, they are the most important transactional actors at this moment in time. And so their need for stability in government is going to become important. And what are the values that corporations are espousing and promoting as both their consumers demanding, their workers are demanding, and, and their
1: shareholders are demanding because their shareholders, they, their shareholders, are shareholders are need confidence that the corporation can operate consistently and return profits. Yeah, and, and without 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 um, without a firm belief in the political framework that it's operating within, that can't happen.
0: No, and there's look, there's a danger there too. I mean, we 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 I think it's easy to believe that corporations do best in a democracy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's the case in China. There's a lot of money being made by- Well, like, it is until it's not. It is until it's not, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And until she pulls
1: them all into a room and says, okay, now you're going to give us all your money, and which he
0: just did. He just did. Yeah. And, there's, and there's, there's a judgment call there. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is yeah. those are the decisions that are increasingly going to have to be made. Yeah. And are corporations willing to be allies in the fight- yeah. For human rights and 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 not just the American experiment here in democracy at home, yeah. but increasingly abroad as we become a more global global um, theater.
1: I think some are and some aren't. We've yeah. already seen that. We're up. Uh, have already absolutely. seen that here in here in America. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we started with Latino voters we in did. California. <laughs>
1: yeah, we did. But the, no, it's it's imp- look, it's important.
0: Um, There's a lot here.
1: Yeah, it's important to understand the political implications of a changing America demographically and politically. But it's important to understand that in you know for me anyway, and it is such a joy and a privilege to think out loud with these with yeah. these things with you. Oh, thanks. And uh, uh, but it's it's important to understand them in the global context that they're happening because I believe, you know, <laughs> I now get to I, I now get to ask really smart people. Questions that I'm curious about uh, as a job, and which means I just get to think about this all the time. Yeah. And the more I think about it, the more it becomes very clear to me that we are we're we in the middle of a of a period of history that is just going to get very very rocky. In our lifetimes. Yeah.
0: I mean, the disruption that we're going to see as the digital age, and we're already in the digital age, um, is going to be far greater than the disruption we saw moving into the industrial um, revolution. Yeah. Which, you know, we we don't experience it the same way because the technology was not there to remember it. But you saw massive demographic change when people moved to cities. And the construction of steel when we started building up. Yeah. And what density and what that created for food and supply chain issues and different technologies and different diseases and different you know interactions and the economic changes that that resulted. these were extremely tumultuous times. Yeah. we have we have the echoes of this have been yeah. there before. Yeah. This will be bigger.
1: Oh, yeah, this It'll will be, be on a
0: grander scale. Yeah. We have the capacity, I think, to deal with it um, because we've got more resources. But we also have the capacity to do more damage to ourselves in the process, too, because that's just part of being human.
1: Yeah. Mike Madrid, my friend, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) It is uh, it's 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 really, really good to be here with you in person.
0: Yeah. Love talking to you about these ideas, but definitely in person. It's uh, it makes a big difference. And, And thank you for what you're doing. Because it's not just you having this conversation; as you're starting a conversation all over the country and, and helping people, if not just understand it, it's asking the right questions. And um, whether people agree with us or not, as far as they the don't. Point. But
1: look, I just hope you're asking. I hope if you're listening to this and you disagree, that's great. Go ask your
0: own questions. Yeah, yeah, really. That's really what this is all about. Is is the more we're asking questions, the more we are going to find solutions. And sometimes I think it's really easy to believe that our own individual actions are not making a difference, but they absolutely are. That's the way the whole thing works. They absolutely are.
1: And I I also think there's something, there's something actually, if you're doing it right, very vulnerable about asking a question because you have to admit you don't know the answer. And right now that's a really hard thing to Mm -hmm. do. It's a really hard thing to lean into uncertainty at Mm -hmm. this moment because the world feels like it's upside down. It's very scary for a lot of people. But the only way we're going to move forward together is by asking questions and being sincere about that inquiry.
0: And to, to drive that home is those that are not are being baited by easy, simple ideologies and misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how QAnon starts. Well, it's comforting. <laughs> it's, it's comforting because- Confident it's, it's, answers it's, are comforting. It's certainty. Yeah. In an uncertain time. Yeah. And, you know, there's a certain bravery in asking uncomfortable questions when nobody knows the answers, but that's the way out. Yeah. It's finding the easy solution. Yeah. It's it's drinking um, from the fountain of misinformation, which is the easy answer to an un into a, in a very chaotic time,
1: yeah.
0: and that's why you start to see the rise of very extreme ideologies. Is it, again, we've seen this in in our own country's past, let yeah. alone human history. Yeah. Is when things are are chaotic and unruly. Extremes take take shape and take form, and the only way to prevent that is to keep asking questions and pushing forward.
1: Ruth Ben Benjiat, who was just on the podcast, an expert in strongmen, professor at NYU, said exactly the same thing. That's when strongmen proliferate. That's when they that's when they do what they do, right? Yep. Because we're looking for strong leadership. We're looking for that kind of Donald Trump style. You know, right. I alone can fix it, mm-hmm. right? And it's very appealing to a certain segment of an electorate of a population. Uh, all these conversations for me just after a, after so many of them they just intersect and I yeah. and, and, and it's and and they all sort of synthesize with one another and it, it's creating this sort of picture that's sort of all sort of coming into focus a
0: little bit better with each new with each it's new it's called truth I think it's called truth <laughs> <laughs> good for you man I love watching you on this journey you're doing great stuff
1: <sighs> thanks man no yeah. okay more soon
0: yeah Always. Bye, political. Yeah.
1: Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.